Well, now, present, loving God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in this sanctuary be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as always, grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the best summaries of scripture that I have ever heard was this one, that basically the Bible is concerned with two major questions, the God question and the human question. The first question is, who is God? What is God like? What is God doing? What does God want? The second question asks, what is a human being? What does a human face look like? What's our significance? How are we supposed to live? And, and nearly every page of scripture is answering or asking both or one of, of these questions. Who is God and who are we? Now, for most of us in this room, these two questions ultimately merge into one solitary, unrepeatable life, the life of Jesus Christ. He becomes the best answer we know to both the God question and the human question. What is God like? God is like Jesus. What does a whole healthy human being look like? It looks like Jesus. But along the way, the Bible also shows us a lot of other human stories. Hearing stories about other human lives helps us grapple with the human question. And short of Jesus Christ himself, it's hard to imagine anyone in the pages of Scripture who helps us understand the human question better than David. When you realize how much is said about David in Scripture, including the fact that twice he is described as someone after God's own heart, you might get the feeling that David was some kind of saint or superhero but he was not. He was far from perfect. David is not always an exemplary man. His story plunges us into the messy business of living. The Apostle Paul once said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Well, our brother David is as earthen as as it gets. We look at his hurts and hates and hopes And we know this is what it means to be human. Even so, in all of Scripture, it is said of no one else but David, he was a man after God's own heart. And when Jesus came and people fell in love with him, what they called him was son of David. I think mostly what David shows us is that being human essentially has to do with God. David doesn't show us how we should live. David shows us how, in fact, we do live. And as we live, God takes the stuff of our daily lives, both the beautiful and the tragic, to work out God's saving purposes in us and in the world. David lived approximately a thousand years after the call of Abraham and around a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. And he's one of few people in the Bible whose life we get to follow all the way from his youth to the end of his old age. And so we're going to spend some time with him this fall, quite a bit of time, actually, 
in the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel, and, and briefly then in First Kings. We're going to follow David all the way up to Thanksgiving, friends. So buckle in. We begin this morning with uh, his very first appearance in Scripture. And it's worth noting today that this first story is hardly about David at all. He, he doesn't say a single word. He doesn't do a single thing except walk into a room and stand there. We don't even learn his name until it's over. He's just a boy who has no idea what all of this means. But God knows. By the way, your story also involves the eyes of God that see you like no one else does. The story begins, as many stories do, with with deep sadness, actually. Someone is grieving. His name is Samuel, the prophet, an old preacher who's been around long enough to have had his heart broken more than a few times. And today he's mourning because the king of Israel, King Saul, has just imploded. Saul had had a promising start. We're going to talk about him in a couple of weeks. But as it turns out, he is deeply, deeply flawed. He's thin-skinned and hot-tempered. He's probably dealing with some clinical depression, which generates some sympathy in us 3,000 years after the fact. But his essential character flaw is is a tragic combination of self-glorification and self-deception. Saul is blind to his arrogance and always believes he's right. And so Samuel, the prophet, grieves. And, and, and that's where we pick up our story today. Samuel is right to grieve. Whenever great promise like Saul's is wasted, we grieve. But you can't grieve forever. So God starts our story today by asking the old prophet this question— How long are you going to grieve over Saul? It's a kind question. God asks that question to get Samuel unstuck. God does the same for you and me. How long are you going to grieve, says God? How long are you going to replay the same old mistakes? How long are you going to linger over your losses and and your failures? God asks these questions to get us moving again through our grief to the place of discovering that even out of the ruins that we have made or that others have made around us, God is able to do a new thing. Samuel says, God, fill your flask with anointing oil and get moving. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. And then God adds, I've provided for myself the king I want among his sons. And in the Hebrew, the word here for provide literally means to see. God says, I have seen a new king. This whole scene shimmers with the sovereignty of God, who pretty much bypasses the search committee here. The selection of David is settled before Samuel even gets out the door. Go see Jesse, says God. But Samuel is pretty sure that this is the worst idea ever. How can I go anoint a new king, he says, in case you haven't noticed the old king is still on the throne. Saul will kill me. To which God 
answers, so you'll take a heifer. And when you get there, you'll announce that you've come to lead the people in the worship of God and that you've brought a sacrifice. And then God says, just make sure Jesse gets invited and I'll let you know what to do next. Do not underestimate God's sneakiness, friends. So Samuel leads a heifer to Bethlehem. And he has no idea what he's looking for among the sons of Jesse. All God will say is, I will show you. We've heard those words before, haven't we? It's the same word God gave to Abraham, who also was called to leave and go to a new place. Go to this place, I will show you. That That's not much to go on. But as countless people, including some in this room, who've trusted God will attest, it's enough. It really is enough. And so in Bethlehem, at Samuel's invitation, Jesse brings seven sons to worship. The first one Samuel sees is Eliad, the oldest, who is tall and handsome and strong. And Samuel says to himself, yes. And God says, no. Stop looking at his appearance, God said. Looks aren't everything. You look at the face, I look at the heart. This whole story really is about how we see and how God sees. Samuel says, all right, I give up. God says, good, now let's see who's here. So one by one, all the sons present themselves to the prophet. The text reads like an episode out of The Bachelorette, actually. One by one, they all parade, they pose, and one by one, Samuel hears a voice that says, not the one, not the one, not the one. So Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? I'd like to pause for just a minute because I feel certain that at least some of you are wondering right about now, didn't David have any sisters? And good for you, if you're wondering. In fact, David had two sisters, Zariah and Abigail. The sisters are not invited to meet the prophet Samuel. They're probably in the food tent scaling fish while history is being made. Some of us don't like it very much that women and girls get overlooked in so many places in Scripture. And I think it's important to remember that these stories, while carrying God's very own word to us, also bear the fingerprints of human hands, the customs and rituals, the beliefs and bigotries, the sins and superstitions and chauvinism of the times in which they were written. And the fact that women were not always visible in some of these stories should not be read as a declaration of how things should be. Our loving, patient God is the one who says, look, I'm going to do a new thing and continues to move the world forward and to pour out God's spirit on all flesh. Back to the story. Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, well, there's the kid, the youngest. He's out tending sheep. When I was a young seminarian, 
like most seminarians, I did a year of supervised ministry, and uh, my field setting was the church in which I was serving as part-time uh, minister of music and youth. My supervisor was the pastor, my mentor, Bill Smith, who went on to serve over in Arlington at Memorial Baptist Church for years. One day, the matriarch of 19th Avenue Baptist Church, an 80-year-old woman named Mildred, who scared the bejeebers out of me, by the way, pulled Bill aside and, referring to me, instructed him, if I'm ever in the hospital, don't send the kid. (laughs) Send for the kid, said Samuel. We're not moving from this spot until he's here, and they all wait, which is lovely. They wait for David. Jesse sends for him, and after a while, he appears, this boy, this teenager, smelling of sheep. And we're not told his name yet. We're just invited to see him, bright-eyed and handsome and ruddy. What do you know? He's a ginger. Could have been a plavnik. And we're not told his name, he, he, but, but he's the very picture of health, and the narrator even pauses here to say, and he had beautiful eyes. For crying out loud, after all this talk about physical appearance being irrelevant and God caring only about the heart, the narrator is intent on letting us know that David is pretty darn handsome. And what Samuel does next surprises everybody in the room. Nobody but Samuel hears the voice that says, this is the one. So he takes his flask of oil and he pours it out on the red hair of this astonished teenager. Everyone in his life thought they knew him, but no one, at least until now, saw him for what he might become. And the text adds, from that day forward, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And that's his name. That's the first time in all of Scripture that it appears. Friends, the story of David is is so very much your story and mine. We, We live our lives largely unaware of the eyes of God on us, seeing us like no one else does. We're acutely aware of other eyes watching us, watching our performance, judging our appearance, registering approval, or writing us off. But that's not how God sees, who looks deep into the real heart of your real life and sees a dearly loved child. God has chosen you, and, and you didn't even see it coming. You were out in the field of your life, doing your job, living and laughing and crying and failing and learning, and you had no idea that someone was coming a long, long way to find you and to make a sacrifice for you and to anoint you with favor and blessing. We had no idea that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and now wants to pour on us the surprise of a brand new calling. And you and I don't fully have to understand what it means, and there's nothing we can do and nothing we can say to make it happen, only to bow our heads like David and to accept the favor of God. And maybe with our brother David, to say 
You have prepared a table before me. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup is running over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. May that be your prayer and mine. Thanks be to God. Amen. And so, merciful God, who in love has seen us and in Christ has anointed us, help us not to run from our calling, but to wear it and to lean into it. And help us to see ourselves and each other as you see us. And help us to rise to your invitation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.